Thanks very much to everybody leading us in worship this morning. It's been really great to be led into God's presence. Uh, just to say, first of all, if you're visiting today, the church isn't always decorated like this. Although, I think it is fantastic. When I was young, I loved cowboys and Indians. This has been this absolutely brilliant. I love it. But anyway, it's um, for the holiday club next week, the holiday Bible club. So, you know, it's going to be a fantastic week. Just encourage all the young people who can to, to come along to that. I'm sure they'll be really blessed. And also just to mention that tonight we're going to have a slightly different kind of service. We're going to have some of the folks who've just arrived at church recently sharing a little bit, some music, etc. And Wilfredo's going to just share a, a brief message at the end. This is Wilfredo and Fee's last Sunday, I believe, here. So, you know, it's been fantastic having them with us. It's been great hearing what God's been doing through them and just assure them that we'll be continuing to pray for them and for the churches there in the Philippines that they they minister to. But it's been a a great privilege to have them with us. Um, Just also, just to say that, you know, it's a real joy for the seniors to be able to meet week by week. And just a, a reminder, the seniors are on next week. It's a great source of blessing that fellowship and time that they have together. So just a reminder to the seniors to to get along and just encourage each other. As is the new member of the singing team over there. He's not the best singer, he's a bit like me, so he's got a wee bit of a red face, but he's doing okay. Just going to read from God's Word. We're looking at the Ten Commandments. We're going to continue again this week, and I'm just going to read one verse because this is the commandment we're on from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It says simply, you shall not murder. And then from Romans chapter 13, verse 8 to 10, it expands it, where Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray. Father, again, we just want to thank you for your commandments. We want to thank you for their abiding relevance to our lives. And we ask you to help us today just to interpret your word correctly and then to see its relevance for each one of us. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I can understand why some people want to believe that there isn't a God. And it's because they don't want to stand before him often and give an account for their lives. Now, here's an example of a group of people who I'm pretty sure will be doing all they can to convince themselves that there isn't a God they will one day have to face up to. And it relates to a news item I saw a few years ago, and it's one that I'll never forget about a Western tobacco company trying to exploit a new market in Africa. So do you know what they decided to do? They decided to sponsor 
a volleyball tournament and also various other sporting events. And then they handed out free samples of their product to the teenagers and even to the children who were there. Now, it's, I think it's hard to think of something more despicable. When something with such great potential to do good, like sport, something that can bring enjoyment, can build character, can lead to a sense of achievement, when something like this is abused, corrupted in this kind of way. Now, here in the West, I know we've heard all the excuses from these companies. We didn't know back in the past the health risk of our product. We didn't deliberately target the young in our advertising. Well, you know, they do know now the health risk. And who else can they be targeting at a volleyball, tar- a volleyball tournament but the young? Yes, and what they do blatantly now in Africa, they still do subtly, I believe, here. And there are a number of compensation courts, uh, cases I know even now going through against the tobacco companies, both in America and I believe still even now in our own company. And if there's any justice, they'll be found guilty. And whatever the level of compensation is set at, it would still need to be more to please me. But I tell you this, whether these companies are found guilty in our courts or not, I do believe that they do stand guilty in God's court. They're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Now, maybe that sounds a bit strong. We'll see. Let's just look at it and we'll find out. Beginning by looking first at what's it about. That is just what, in essence, is this commandment actually forbidden? Because, you see, in most of the older translation, the sixth commandment is, you shall not kill. Whereas here, whereas in the NIV, It's you shall not murder. Well, I believe it's the NIV this time that has actually captured the sense of what's intended in its translation. For what God seeks to prohibit in this command, it's not all killing as such, but rather unlawful killing. I mean, just a little bit further on in Exodus 21.12, it stipulates that a man who murders another man shall himself be put to death. Now you see, if the sixth commandment was a blanket veto across the board on all killing, then that instruction wouldn't be there. For how could God tell his people to do something that he'd commanded them not to do? And in Deuteronomy 20, we find the Lord giving rules there for how warfare at that time by his people was to be conducted. However, If killing is never in any circumstances legitimate, then how could God give his people rules and instructions about how to conduct themselves in war? Because I've never heard of a war yet in which no one was killed. But however, in what the Lord says about the conduct of war, about his people's reaction to crime, their treatment of criminals... What he consistently seeks to do is to restrain his people in terms of the kind of savage excess that was common then in the nations around them. Even the 
often quoted statement. You know, we hear again and again, Deuter- uh, sorry, Exodus, I'm getting mixed up with those two again. Exodus 21, 24, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That isn't given to legitimize vengeance, but rather it's actually given to limit it. Because at that time, if someone took your tooth, well, if you had the opportunity, you'd be going straight for their head. And you see, the Lord Jesus himself, he lived in obedience to this commandment. For even though Jesus was called the Prince of Peace, and even though he wouldn't allow his followers to fight to defend him, yet never at any time did Jesus teach or in fact model absolute non-violence. Rather, in fact, there were even times when Jesus saw that, that violence was legitimate, even necessary. And surely that's exemplified for us in his famous cleansing of the temple. For example, in Mark eleven fifteen, where we read there, that on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the table of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So then, the sixth commandment isn't a full-out, against-killing, full-stop thing. Rather, it's against unlawful killing. And the Bible does seem to envisage that there are times, for example, as a a necessary response to, to crime or in times of war, when it is legitimate for the state, for the individual even, to kill. But the real driving force, though, behind this commandment is that God is against unlawful killing. And that's why, for instance, I believe the tobacco companies and others like them who knowingly seduce uninformed and immature people into taking substances that will eventually kill many of them, all for the sake of profit. That's why I believe that they are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Because while what they are doing might not yet be unlawful or illegitimate in the eyes of our national laws, the problem here, though, is with the shortcomings of our laws. But in the eyes of the one whose judgment is true, in the court that really matters, I've got no doubt, personally, that these companies and the people behind them are guilty of unlawful killing. But let's look at this, though, from a slightly different angle. Millions upon millions of creatures are killed every day. For instance, we know that. Who'd want to be a turkey, we say, at Christmas? Isn't that true? So then why does God make such a big thing about the killing of humans? Yes, so why is it there? Why is this commandment there in the first place? For there are those, and increasingly so, who would say that human beings are just highly developed animals. So why then should we make them such a big thing in particular about humans, about the killing of humans. Well, I want to say that there is no question that in our nation today that largely has abandoned the concept of God as the the foundation on which our life is to be built. All that's left now is a kind of sentimental residue of faith. There's no question for me that this is more and more becoming the prevalent view. 
But as we're going to see in a, in a few minutes, this kind of view of man as simply a highly developed animal is having. And I believe, if unchallenged, increasingly will have frightening consequences for our lives and indeed for our national life. But what's the Bible's response? What should be the Christian's response to this contention, this fundamental contention, that we are highly developed animals? Well, I believe it's to begin by saying that yes, we are. We are highly developed animals. Because there are marked similarities between us and the the rest of the animal kingdom. That's why things like medicines, etc., are tested on certain animals before they're given to humans. Because it's known that the way that these particular animals react will be a good guide to the way that humans react. So humans are highly developed animals. Very highly developed, I'd want to add, in comparison to much of the animal kingdom. At least most humans are. Anyway, but the Bible says, and so Christians believe, and it's here that we differ from the world around us, the Bible says that we are also much more than simply animals. We are because God has placed His image, God has placed His likeness within us. Genesis 9, 6. For in the image of God, it says, God has made man. Yes, God has put His image, God has put His likeness within man. God has placed within man that of Himself that lifts man above the level of animals. Now, just what this image of God in man means in, in concrete terms, it's, it's difficult to be definitive about, but the, the kind of qualities that traditionally have been understood to be a reflection of the, the likeness of God in man are things like man's creativity. For instance, while other animals, maybe say like beavers, I don't know, like, or birds even, while they can build kind of homes for themselves, and they do, Yet not many of them so far have been found to hang pictures on their walls. And then we've got other things like like man's moral awareness, like man's basic understanding of the fact that there actually is such a a thing as right and wrong. That lifts us above the animals, as Mark Twain once put it. Man is the only animal that blushes and has reason to. Then we've got man's spiritual awareness. That's, that's man's basic, fundamental awareness that there is a God to be worshipped. An awareness that's often distorted, but that still is undeniably there in every nation, every race, every culture of our world, right down through history to the pleasant present day. So you see, it's this, it's this image of God in man that makes human life sacred. And it's because of this that God commands man not to unlawfully kill another human being. But as we've said, the vast majority of our nation have abandoned the concept of God as the foundation for life. And so as a result, they've abandoned also this view of the the sacredness of human life because they say, we're too advanced, we're 
too sophisticated to need God. We can go it on our own. We can make up our own laws, our own rules, our own regulations. Can we really? Can we? Let's look and see just what in this instance, what actually happens when we take God out of the equation of life. As we look finally here, at what is its relevance? That is, what's the challenge today of this commandment? And really all I can do here out of a whole array of different options is pick out some of what I believe to be the most important examples. So let's begin with capital punishment. Now you see, for most of human history, with its roots most certainly in the Bible here, as we've seen, for most of human history, capital punishment, the ending of life as punishment for the most onerous crimes, and certainly for murder, has been seen by most societies as a useful means of upholding the rule of law. Useful in protecting society by removing once and for all such a serious offender. Useful in terms of deterring others from committing the same crime. And also as a just and necessary means of punishing someone for the extreme crimes they've committed. Now though, in many of our so-called civilised societies, capital punishment is seen as barbaric. But you see, others would argue that the real barbarism here is actually to be found in the kind of society that we've degenerated into in the absence of this ultimate sanction. And people can bring all sorts of statistics into play in order to argue both for and against capital punishment. For instance, some would point to the enormous escalation of murders in Britain since capital punishment was abolished. And yet others, though, would, would counter, hey, wait a minute, there have been lots of other changes of our, in our society in the last 50 years or so which have contributed to this. And besides that, they still have capital punishment in many parts of the United States, and yet they also have a far higher murder rate than we have. To which, you know, we could come back with the counter-counter-argument, and we could say, yes, but given the vast number of guns that are in private hands in the United States, we can't compare light for light here. And it could be that they would have far more murders there if they didn't have the ultimate deterrent of the death penalty. You see, it's what's called the classic circular argument. But for me, I think the problem with a lot of these arguments is that they're very much concentrated on the individual. Or at best, they they think about small groups, either trying to safeguard the criminal's life, or we're thinking about protecting me, or or about guarding my family, and, and we're not often thinking much beyond that. I think, though, that the best way to think our way through much of the inevitable emotion that's found here is to try and get the big picture. That is, God wants us as a society. He wants us to hold human life as sacred. And I believe, 
personally that any society that is not prepared to use the ultimate sanction to protect human life just does not have a high enough view of God and of man made in his image. And that that society is on the slippery slope to spiritual and moral decay. Now I know, let me say and make it clear, I know that many mistakes were made in the past. And I think we'd have to look for far greater burden of proof and that the death penalty should be used for a narrower band of crimes. It should be used much more selectively. But say for for multiple killers who are found guilty beyond reasonable doubt, I, I personally can't see any point in imprisoning them for the rest of their life. Take Ian Brady, just as an example, and Myra Hindley. Been in prison for, I don't know, 40 years or so. And he wants to die. I can't see how it's merciful or just to keep him alive. Myra Hindley was supposed to have repented before she died. And if that's true, that's wonderful. And I believe she's forgiven. But, you know, even when we are forgiven... Sometimes we still have to pay for the consequences of our crime. And given what she did, I believe that was the case for her. Do you know, the most honest comment I've ever heard on this subject was in a relatively lightweight TV uh, interview a number of years ago of a former Conservative minister, Rhodes Boyson. Now, the gist of what he said was that if we have the death penalty... That try as we might, we're still bound to make mistakes. We could have made much less, but we're still bound to make mistakes. But he went on, but that's a price I would be prepared to pay for the sake of society. I want to say, I agree with him. But let's look at another area of modern life that's challenged by this commandment. That is abortion and attitude to abortion. You know, in 1967, when the Abortion Act became law in this country, the idea supposedly was to allow abortion in exceptional cases. That is, where the mother or baby's life were at risk in cases of severe deformity or where the continued pregnancy would cause grave psychological harm to the mother. Here's what's actually happened. Between 1968 and 1991, that's not that long, 3.5 million abortions were carried out in our country, and there's been far more carried out since. One in five children conceived in our country today is now aborted. One in four women, so they say, aged between 16 and 24, has had an abortion. In the United States, there are currently 1.5 million abortions per year. Which means that every four years in the United States, the equivalent of the population of Scotland is aborted. Now you've probably heard this before, but it's still a fact. That the most dangerous place to be in the Western world today isn't on the streets of an inner city after midnight with a big bag of money in your hand isn't even as a soldier serving in Iraq or Syria. No, the most dangerous place to be today in the Western world 
is within the mother's womb. That's the kind of society we've become. We're the place where God intended us to be the most protected has become the place where life is most at risk. And one of the worst, most blatant examples in recent years of the absolute abuse of the abortion law was back in 1996, when the mother of twins asked for one of her healthy babies to be aborted. Now, the, the hospital that she was being treated in, a private hospital, funnily enough, leaked a report to the press indicating that this mother was a single parent living in poverty who could neither cope with nor afford twins. If she wasn't allowed to abort one, both would be aborted. One child was aborted. But later on, it was discovered that this lady wasn't single and poor. By the way, that wouldn't matter as far as I'm concerned anyway. But rather, that she was actually married to a company director. She didn't want twins because, in her words, they would be too much of a burden. Now, besides everything else that that raises, in the light of the bond that there is between twins, what an amazing act of cruelty this was, even to the surviving child. Of course, one of the big questions in the abortion issue is, is when does the life in the womb actually become a human life with all the, the different rights and the, the dignity that's attached? Some, and this has been what's traditionally been said, some say that the, the fullness of life is achieved at birth. Others, that it becomes human at the point of viability. That is when it becomes viable. I should have said at conception, by the way, earlier on. Others, that it becomes human at the point of viability. That is when you know, the baby becomes viable outside of the womb, that then abortion should be much more restricted. But you see, modern science lets us observe that the, the child within the womb, just a few weeks into this new life, it is instantly recognisable after a few weeks as a human being with tiny little eyes, tiny little hands and feet. So my belief is that it is at the moment of conception that we have a human life. Because simply... Because from that moment on, everything that determines the uniqueness of a person is there. And all of the, the talk in the pro-abortion lobby about potential life and about a fetus, I believe is just a means of trying to avoid the hard truth that it is a baby that's being killed. Now, I'm not going to go into the practical details of abortion Suffice it to say that many of the methods used are gruesome and that whereas once it was thought, maybe it was hoped that the baby aborted didn't feel pain, well now there's much more weight to the view that they actually feel more pain because of hormonal factors. And it's not just them, it's not just the babies, it's also the mothers. For research suggests that abortion increases the chances of breast cancer by about a third. And then... There's also, in addition, the emotional consequences. I mean, I can well remember, sticks out in my mind, in my early days 
in ministry, meeting and sharing and praying with a lady who was racked by guilt because of an abortion that she'd been coerced into years earlier. Like so many others, she'd been vulnerable. She didn't know the full facts and pressure was put on her. I reassured her of God's readiness to forgive as she turned to him in repentance. But she found it hard to hold on to that and to trust in that. Now, maybe you don't want to know all of this and you, know, you kind of find it a bit unpleasant. I understand that. And I'm sorry if that's the case. But you know, I would also have to say, if you want to turn away from this, you have a problem. Because God holds human life as sacred. And he expects his people to do the same. There's a holocaust going on today and he expects his people to stand up against it. And as God's people, we need to be his prophetic voice to our nation or else I fear we will come under its judgment. And, and you know something? We can, I believe, on this issue, turn our nation. We can do it. God's people have done it in the past. We can do it again. Paul Johnson, a feature writer in the Daily Mail, once wrote that as society woke up to the evils of slavery, so society may wake up yet again to the unleashed horror of mass abortion. You know, people at the time of Wilberforce argued against him because they thought that society could not survive economically without slavery. Wilberforce and other Christians, though, campaigned. And they said that doesn't matter. And they showed slavery to be morally and spiritually indefensible. We've managed pretty well economically without it, haven't we? We've done okay. And we can manage without mass abortion as well. And I could say more here, and certainly I don't want to be thought to be saying that we should never, in any case, have abortion. Sometimes when life is in danger or there's been some kind of abuse, maybe abortion is the right option. But what I am saying is that the silent victims, those who cannot speak in this abortion scandal, need the church above all others to be their voice. And please don't fool yourself that, that all that we're talking about, that you've maybe reached a stage in life where all this is kind of pretty academic and irrelevant as far as you're concerned. Don't think that, because let me just mention one final thing. Euthanasia. For do you think that a society that has moved so far away from the Bible's view and from God's view of the sacredness of life, a society that is now so cavalier about terminating life at its beginning. Do you think that this society is going to harbour scruples for much longer about euthanasia for the old and the terminally ill? Now we've, we hear it again and again that soon a significantly smaller working population is going to have to support an ever-growing, longer-living elderly population. Sorry about this, folks elderly population. Don't you think that soon voluntary euthanasia is going to become an option? Voluntary euthanasia. I mean, we're already talking, already much in play, living wills. Today in the world, euthanasia is, is already illegal in places like Holland, Denmark, Belgium, and I think Australia too is flustered with the idea. 
oh, you know, euthanasia will maybe start off as voluntary. We've seen it all before with abortion. It'll maybe start off, everybody will say, it'll be argued, it's just for the few extreme cases. It's just to put people out of their misery. But we do live in an increasingly brutal and selfish world. And I think it won't be too long before those in extreme old age and those who are terminally ill will have the right to decide taken from them. I mean, as far back as 1990, a Dutch government official confessed that several thousand in that year, he couldn't or wouldn't be any more specific than that, are actually being killed in Holland, were killed in Holland, without their permission. Now you see, in our country, in societies like that, it will probably all be dressed up in pretty words. And it'll probably be done in the most tasteful way and it'll be in serene surroundings. But that will not alter what's really happening. That men are playing at being God. That they're taking the sacred and throwing it into the dirt. Now, let me again make it clear. I'm not for people artificially at times being kept alive. That happens sometimes you know, too often and for too long when life really is unsustainable. But I tell you, I am against one human being taking another's life from them, making that decision. So I was very concerned a number of years ago about the case of Tony Bland, one of the young victims of the Hillsborough disaster. He was in a coma, a post-vegetative state, But you see, what the court allowed then was not the ending of treatment to prolong his life, which I could understand, but rather the removal of that which basically nourished his body. He was left really to starve and die of thirst. I want to say I think that today we're at a very dangerous point in our history. We've abandoned God. We've abandoned his word. We no longer live by it, no longer look to it. We've abandoned his commandments. And so many in our society cannot see the problem and they cannot see where this has taken us. But we who know the Lord can see. And as you would cry out to someone you saw in danger of falling over a cliff, so we have a responsibility to cry out to our nation And to seek to draw them back to the Lord. For the moment, they may ignore our voice. And they have to answer for that. Our responsibility though, is to be, and then continue to be, God's voice. Let us not fail him. And let us not fail them. Let's pray together. Father, we know that these are big issues that we look at and that these are challenges that take us right to the very heart of the the battle that goes on in our nation as to whether we are simply going to be a, a secular, atheistic country or whether we're going to look again to your commands and seek to live our life and our national life in a way that gives you your place and your place of honor. 
Father, help us. Lord, we know the tide is against faith and against your word, but help us to take our responsibility seriously, to stand for you and speak up for you. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.